This is Unfilter, episode 317 for July 3rd, 2020. This is bad as it gets. And yet the president will not confront the Russians on this score, denies being brief. I don't know what the Russians have on the president politically, personally, financially or whatever it is. But he wants to ignore. Uh, he wants to bring them back into the G8 despite the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. And he's kissing up to Putin in every way. He's so totally irresponsible. Something is wrong with this picture. Hello, friends, and welcome to 317 of your Unfilter Playing the Preposterous Hits podcast. (laughs) My name is Chris, and this episode got me angry in the prep. There are things happening this week that make me so damn angry. And no, it's not that I'm stuck in Texas. Actually, that's been quite nice. We decided to avoid the Rona in the streets and stay in Austin a little bit longer so we can just make a beeline to our next destination. And boy, have I been watching some crap go down. And speaking of Nancy, Nancy and Chuck, they're such they're such kind, considerate, caring people that when there's something gripping the nation, they're really tapped into it. Uh, to the Congressional Black Caucus who have shaped the bill. But I only will do that if you tell me that this legislation is worthy of George Kirby's name. Who is that? So who? And he said it is. Oh, and she's so proud of herself. And so we're very proud. We're very proud to carry that. Well, I'm sure Chuck will get it right. Who do you believe when it comes to civil rights and police accountability? Mitch McConnell or the lawyer for the families of Floyd Taylor, or George Taylor, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor? There you go. You got it. You can tell they're really tapped in. They care a lot about what's happening on the ground. But we'll get to them in a moment. And let's talk about what is happening on the ground in my hometown of Seattle. CHOP, or CHAZ, has officially been shut down after another shooting. Yeah, a fourth shooting. Breaking news in the so-called Capitol Hill organized protest zone. There's been yet another shooting. Early this morning, protesters finished a march back to Cal Anderson Park when they say gunshots were fired nearby. You could hear it on that live stream there. Several protesters were streaming it live at the time, but the supposed gunfire did not stop there. We have team coverage this morning on this breaking news. First King 5, Kayla Lafferty joining us. What it was an interesting thing to witness is at the rapid pace at which the police reclaimed the chop zone they set up they got in really early even before the sunrise they started positioning really heavy equipment just outside chop and then they gave them a few warnings they sent some people in and then by mid-morning they had machines in there just clearing the streets and by the afternoon they were done now there's still damage and lots of cleanup to do but like the bulk of it was gone. Just like that. I don't know where they all went. I don't know what happens next. Some were, some were refusing to leave. We talked about this shutdown last week, and some were refusing to leave. This is the good news of the week. 
uh, uh, which isn't necessarily all that good. It would have been nice to see them affect some sort of change. I might myself have talked about how when a cop pulls out behind my car when I'm going down the road or when I'm walking by a cop in public, I don't feel safe. My family doesn't feel safe. So I can only imagine how others might feel. I would like to have seen some actual change happen here. But um doesn't seem like that was going to really happen. Not 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 this way. But it did it did set a movement, um, but it's over now. And I'll keep an eye out. Maybe maybe it'll start cropping up somewhere else in Seattle. We'll see. But I want to shift gears at the top of the show. Because there's so much to get into, and there's not a lot more developing with Chop. And I want to talk about something that happened while this show was on hiatus. That is the arrest and murder of Jeffrey Epstein. And the other aspect of the story that until today has been a huge question mark. And that was, where the hell is Jeff's right-hand lady? I call her Gasoline Maxwell because she was the fuel for his pedo fire. And she finally has been tracked down. She wasn't in Israel, like the pictures reported. She wasn't in France, like the papers reported. She was chilling in a giant mansion. On to another top story out of the U.S. British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell is facing federal charges of conspiring to sexually abuse minors with convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The 58-year-old made her initial court appearance from New Hampshire via teleconference, but she's being transferred to New York where the charges were filed. The case is being watched around the world because of its connections to the rich, powerful and to royalty. More in this report. Yeah, it's really got all the elements. It's got presidents, it's got princes, it's got everything. She is the figure that keeps reappearing in images associated with the Epstein scandal. At Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago party in 2000. On the front row at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. And here, right behind Prince Andrew and a then 17-year-old Virginia Roberts Giuffre... Who claims in court documents... What's so incredible about that photo, and you've probably seen it, it's it's the young lady, uh, the prince, and gasoline right there in the photo. They're all there, just grinning like a bunch of perverts. And it's really, it's really critical that we find her, because she was essentially his red little book, his index cards of contacts, and a, a person of immense privilege her entire life, she hobnobbed with royalty literal royalty. So she was a great means for Jeff to get access to all kinds of people that his CIA buddies couldn't get him access to. It was a portrait of power and privilege, private jets, high society, exclusive parties with the future president, hobnobbing with heads of state, even royalty. I think we expect child predators to look like monsters, but really they are lurking among us. Now nearly a year after his death, the gilded house of cards continues to fall. Today we announced the arrest of one of the villains in this investigation. Ghislaine Maxwell finally stands charged for her role in these crimes. This is a day of reckoning. Today, Ghislaine Maxwell under arrest, the alleged madam and right hand of the disgraced financier who died by apparent suicide last August in a Manhattan jail while awaiting trial on charges of sex trafficking. The saga of Jeffrey Epstein did not end when he died by suicide in jail. Federal prosecutors 
had kept on digging. The 58-year-old British socialite accused of grooming three unnamed teenage victims between 1994 and 97. Prosec- Actually, court documents claim that it went as long as 2002. I'm not sure why this 1994 and 97 is the specific range for her, but it is in, it is in all of the charges. But when you, when you look at that picture of that young lady who was in um, the picture with gasoline and the prince, she alleges that it lasted till 2002. It was a portrait of power and privilege, private jets, high society, exclusive parties with a future president. Sounds so fancy, doesn't it? Doesn't it just sound so fancy? Uh, this is a Nightline it report. It was a portrait of power and privilege. <laughs> you can hear it with like the, the pre-production in there and whatnot. Like they're, you know, they're making it, they're making it into quite the uh, little mini movie on television. What Jeffrey Epstein was doing. Will the FBI be questioning him? If not, why not? So let's talk about Cucker Tuckerson here, because I thought uh, he had a rather interesting take on it. I don't normally play Cucker on the show. Boy, his ratings just doing ridiculous right now. But let's jump back to Cucker here. He brought on an author of one of the better books on Jeff. Former Jeffrey Epstein confidant Jelaine Maxwell once said that above all, she had one great passion, saving the oceans. At 1,500 feet, I switched on the lights, hoping to see a new mythical sea creature, but in fact what I saw was a plastic hanger. I was so absolutely devastated, but it was at that moment that I realized that I was really going to dedicate the rest of my life to uh, taking uh, an involvement with and bringing an education around uh, the ocean. Nice sentiment didn't turn out that way. Instead, Maxwell dedicated much of her life to something else, helping abuse young girls. Today, federal officials announced criminal charges against her for the years that she spent working for Jeffrey Epstein. Today, we announced charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through 1997. In some cases, Maxwell participated in the abuse herself. Maxwell enticed minor girls, got them to trust her, then delivered them into the trap that she and Epstein had set. Maxwell has been all over the world recently, according to news reports, but authorities arrested her in an isolated home in central New Hampshire. Why? What was she doing there? What we know tonight is that Maxwell bought the house and the 156 acres it sits on last December. She bought it anonymously for a million dollars in cash. Maybe now that she's under arrest, maybe she's on suicide watch tonight, we'll learn more about what she did for Jeffrey Epstein and what Jeffrey Epstein did. Where did all the money come from? And Where why did all the money come from? CIA. The uh, house that she bought is gorgeous. You've probably seen pictures of it. They or she or someone bought it through an LLC. The seller never knew the identity of the purchaser. There was never any names beyond this shell corporation that made the cash acquisition. (laughs) And her driveway was half a mile long. She had a half a mile drive up to this amazing mansion where she sat in total luxury. And she probably assumed she'd just sit there for a while. That's how these people live. They live outside society. They live outside the law. Their life is nothing like our life. 
even when they are on the ropes, when they are on the literal run from the law, they're still sitting in a beautiful home of luxury beyond anything I could ever dream of owning. Think about that for a moment, how disgusting these people are and the life that they get to live. And think about the system that enabled that. Clintons, the princes, the Trumps, and so many more. All enablers of this disgusting blackmail ring. And now, gasoline is going to the New York prison system. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. See if she accidentally suicides herself. If it happens, my guess would be it would happen closer to the election. Closer to October is my guess. This is going to be a slow burn. It's been a slow burn to find her. It'll be a slow burn to prosecute her. There's time. And you can't do it now. There's too many people watching. It'd be weird. But what an ultimate slap in the face it would be if both Jeffrey and Gasoline suicide themselves. Will the people buy it? Jeffrey Epstein's death was one of the few times where people actually seem to not be buying the narrative. People didn't, I mean, I think on on mass, people don't think he killed himself. They think he was murdered. That's remarkable. That's remarkable because even doing this show since 2012, I have watched political enemies assassinated and it called, it was called suicide and then everybody believed it. And then when Chris comes on the air and says, this person was murdered. Oh, Chris, you're such a nut. Go fry your bacon. But this time when it happened to Jeffrey Epstein, people went, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Even though it's almost, it's so crazy. Like just check this one out. So many people who are about to testify against the Clintons or, or any other people in power, right, right around before they testify, they die. They just that's when they decide to suicide themselves. It's the craziest thing. <laughs> and so now you've got a new chapter to the Epstein story unfolding. What would be the best case scenario, in your opinion? I'll tell you what it'd be in mine. In my opinion, and I know this is going to sound weird, she cuts a deal. Right now, hold and stay with me, because obviously I'd love to see this woman burn in hell, just rot in jail forever. Especially somebody who's had such a luxurious life of royalty to have to sit in prison. I mean, what, what a 180, what a contrast. That would be torture 24-7 for her. I would love it because she deserves it in every sense of the word. But I would trade that to get real names, to get real arrests, to get some serious indictments of the truly corrupt sickos in power who have taken advantage of children for fun. I, I'd trade her for a handful of gross sicko politicians. Maybe. I think that could be the best case scenario is that she gets a plea deal and she names names. Worst case scenario is she gets a plea deal and she doesn't name names. Something tells me that's more likely. But what do you think about this? Let me know on filter.show slash discord. You guys let me know what you think about this one. I want to shift gears on a totally different topic here for a moment. This is just sort of a one aside. Um, I've talked about this in our discord. I'm trying to come up with a way to appropriately cover the federal government's efforts to ban encryption, 
to mandate backdoors into encryption. As a technologist, I think this is a horrible idea. It's just if you make a backdoor, it's not only the good guys that will use it. And maybe you could build something that the bad guys couldn't exploit for a few years. But as technology improves, our ability to crack encryption improves. And as tech products age, vulnerabilities will be discovered. So it's dangerous in that regard. But also, I think it's anti-math in a way. It's sort of refusing to accept the way math works, which is embarrassing. It's embarrassing that that's the position of the federal government now, that they're anti-math, anti-intellectual. And I don't actually think it's a problem. Well, I know it's not a problem that is unique to the United States of America. It is a problem that is going to be in every major Western and every nation, China, obviously. I mean, there's some things that just are obvious table stakes in this conversation. But this clip I have here is about European police cracking an encrypted network, which then led to a series of pretty intense arrests. Cracking apart criminal networks, police across the UK have made hundreds of arrests after infiltrating an encrypted phone system used by suspected top-tier criminals. They've seized guns, drugs and cash, amounting to millions of dollars. During the course of the operation, which has obviously been run by the NCA, uh, regional and police forces, we have arrested so far 746 individuals. Oh. We've seized over 77 firearms, four hand grenades, um, just under two tonnes of drugs, which is worth £80 million on the streets. And we've seized over £54 million of criminal cash. So it is a massive law enforcement operation and success. The operation began when French police hacked into a highly encrypted messaging platform found on bespoke EncroChat phones. The system was used by 60,000 people worldwide, 10,000 of them in Britain. Soon it became a massive cross-border investigation. 60,000 uh, is not very much. opened in France uh, targeting uh, EncroChat, uh, the, the system of providing uh, encrypted uh, information towards criminals. There was a criminal investigation started that had direct a lot of international relations. So that's the reason why JIT was formed between France and the Netherlands, with your Justin Europol. Operation Venetic, launched in April, involved every police force in Britain. In some raids, officers used stun guns to arrest suspects involved in drugs and arms trafficking. The National Crime Agency says it also prevented the murder of several people who were the targets of rival gangs. Now, what a great use case for cracking encryption. What a brilliant, brilliant opportunity that has been opened up for the United States federal government to say, look at that. Look at that joint effort between the Netherlands and France and the way they had to go after that anchor app. And then look at the drugs they took off the streets and the guns and the, even saved a life from murder. What they don't realize because they're anti-intellectual, because they're, advocate, they're advocating for change to technology that they don't understand, is these kinds of cracks prove the tech industry's point. When you have one-off apps that implement their own encryption, they do their own crypto math, it's vulnerable. It's crackable because it is so tremendously hard to get crypto right. 
It's tremendously hard to cover all the little cracks, the leaks of metadata, the information that comes through push servers. It's stupendously difficult. And if a group is stupid enough to th- and arrogant enough to think that they can roll their own encryption and figure out something that somebody else hasn't figured out, they're going to get caught. These bespoke encryption solutions that vendors would be required to be compliant with encryption backdoors would make the very technology susceptible to the kind of exploits that they are using right now (laughs) to get access to this information. It proves the point, but they can't see it because they don't even understand what they're asking for. Shameful. It truly is shameful. And I hope I hope you can help me collect clips so we can put names on politicians that are pushing this forward. I want to try to do the best coverage I can about this effort to roll back encryption and install backdoors and make it a federal law that technology that ships in the United States, which would impact the rest of the world, have backdoors. I want to try to cover that as best we can. We have a clips channel in the Discord. If you find something, please drop it in there. And then at name tag me. So that way I see that clip. Especially when I'm on the road, it's easy for me to miss that stuff. But I really want to collect it. I think it's absolutely important we have that conversation. Just a quickie here in the social, the social, showception, show inception, social. I don't know. I'm trying to make it one word, but it ain't working out. <laughs> you know, I just I thought I'd try to come up with something. It ain't happening. Somebody suggested in this section of the show, we need like a little background music going, you know, something to kind of play while I'm talking. So uh, I came up with this. I don't know if this is this is uh, exactly going to be it. So if you have any suggestions of like rad music to play during the showception segment, uh, let me know. This is a uh, this is a little bit of our main theme song. So I happen to be very partial to this one. much for the showception segment other than to say thank you to all of you who support us out there at patreon.com slash unfilter and a big shout out to the community that has continued to grow around this show people are still discovering that the unfilter program is back join us on filter.show slash discord we'd love to have you there If you can't support the show at patreon.com slash unfilter, spreading the word to someone who might be interested in the show helps a lot, too. Let's resume the show. We got too much to get into. You know what they say in an election year? 
Everything is about the election. Everything. And you would hope when we're going through a pandemic, a situation unlike any in our lifetimes, that would be the one moment as a nation we would rise above, rise above politics and do what's best. But instead, we're doubling down and we're making it a partisan issue. And two different conservative groups have released attack ads that clearly place the blame for everything gone wrong with the big Rona right on Donald Trump's shoulders. When it comes to COVID-19, President Trump has given up. That the Trump administration is planning to end its funding and support for coronavirus testing. Trump got jealous of Dr. Fauci and Burks and upset by his bad reviews. Yeah, that might not ever happen. So he canceled the task force briefings altogether. And now cases in the U.S. have risen, while Europe's cases have plummeted. So while Trump might be finished dealing with the virus, the virus isn't finished with us. This is what it looks like when a president gives up. So that's group one. Here's group two's ad. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them. As they've slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Those who are lost now, their legacy must be our lives. Dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers. We dominate the streets. I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. It's time to pick up our heads. Remember who we are. This is the United States of America. USA. USA, just not with Trump, just not with Trump. Conservative groups and, of course, the left are going after Trump for what is a very gnarly looking COVID situation. Florida has hit 10,000 new cases going into this Fourth of July weekend. We are heading into what the health experts fear could be an especially dangerous weekend for the spread of the coronavirus. Beaches, if they're open and restaurants will likely be crowded for Fourth of July celebrations, even with new restrictions in several states, just as the U.S. hits another new daily record. The numbers are climbing, Tony. Yeah, they are. More than 52,000 new cases were reported across the country yesterday. And since Memorial Day, cases are up an alarming 64 percent. The state of Florida just hit 10,000 cases in a single day. That's after an aggressive reopening plan was rolled out last month. Our lead national correspondent, David Begno, is in Miami for us. David, good morning. 10,000 cases a day, that's New York-like numbers from back in April, the peak of this outbreak. What's the situation there now? Well, Miami-Dade County is racing to roll back their reopening. They've reimposed a curfew. They're rolling back the reopening of entertainment venues. Hospitalizations have more than doubled in the last two weeks, and nearly one out of every four tests being performed right now is coming back positive. Listen to what a leading expert told us. Right now, we are heading a million miles per hour in the wrong direction. That is Dr. Eileen Marty. She is an infectious disease expert who helped Miami-Dade County write its reopening rules. But she says not enough people are following them. So now beaches have closed. 
The county is under a 10 p.m. curfew and the virus is spreading at an alarming rate. It's absolutely the saddest thing, the most unnecessary situation that we're finding ourselves in and it's behaviorally driven. Florida smashed through its single day record for new cases Thursday. In the last 14 days, the total number of cases has doubled nearly 96%. The spike brought Vice President Mike Pence to Florida. No one wants to see these numbers where they are. He met with the state's governor, Ron DeSantis, who is urging Floridians to be cautious over the 4th of July holiday. If everyone is, you know, enjoying life, but doing it responsibly, you know, we're going to be fine. We'll get that positivity rate down. COVID-19 is not going away. In fact, it's getting worse. It's a different tone in Texas, where Governor Greg Abbott made a stunning reversal ahead of the holiday weekend. It's a holiday, he is the holiday. We're worried about the holiday. The 4th of July, it's going to become a super spreader event. In the COVID intensive care unit at this hospital in Texas, urgency mixes with dread. We are having an explosion of COVID. We aren't overrun yet, but it's overwhelming. Texas is one of the states that had eased up on steps to combat the virus, but as its own governor today underlined, In the past few weeks, there has been a swift and a substantial spike in COVID-19 cases. So we need to refocus on slowing the spread. It's really all because the damn young people keep going to bars. Bars in Texas once again shut down now a second time because of the coronavirus crisis. But bar owners are not taking this lying down. They are now suing to stop the closures. T. Allen Parker is one of the leaders of the bar owners. She's live. Now, I recall during the height of the New York outbreaks, I believe what I said then was what's happening in New York will eventually play out in other hotspots around the country. I need to come up with another term than hotspots because if I say that, I think it triggers people <laughs> because Trump says those words and so people get upset. But I, I, it just seemed obvious to me that what New York was doing at a larger scale was going to happen in other highly populated areas. It's not just Texas. It's not just Florida. It's everywhere. And the reality is this isn't necessarily, as far as I can tell, another surge or a round two. It's that round one never ended. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with our health lead explosive growth of new coronavirus infections and hospitalizations throughout much of the United States. Today, the health of the world, the head of the World Health Organization giving this blunt assessment, the pandemic is, quote, not even close to being over, he said. At least 46 of the United States are seeing surges in cases or holding steady. Only four states are showing a decline, an alarming spike since this time last week. And Let's the all go there. <laughs> Let's all go where it's not spiking. Everybody rush to that area. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? And you got to ask yourself, what is happening? What went, was it the openings? Because one thing that is not being brought up by pretty much anybody is the idea that about three weeks ago, Thousands of people went into the streets. Thousands of people got together during the height of a pandemic and protested. This seems like the obvious conclusion, but you see, 
That's not the case. No, no, you we're being told by just about every local news station around the nation that the protests are not linked to a recent spike in coronavirus cases, coronavirus cases. No, no. No, you see, th- in fact, it's helped the situation. You have asked us if protests over the last month are causing these spikes. So let's verify. Our source is the Sacramento County Department of Public Health. Now, the county told us so far they've only found four cases where people reported going to a protest and then getting sick. Health leaders admit it is possible there are more infected protesters out there who haven't gotten tested. But for as the current spike, those four cases make up less than half a percent of the county's total cases. So we can verify protests are not responsible for these huge increases we're seeing right now in Sacramento County. Though it is important to remember there's a data delay, so that answer could change a few weeks from now. Meanwhile, we've been asking health leaders across our area what is responsible. Take a listen. What do you think it could be? The, the very vast majority of cases are individuals whose primary risk factor appears to be family gatherings, different households uh, getting together um, and basically mixing. There are patterns happening where people that attended the same gatherings are testing positive. Health leaders in Sacramento, Solano, and San Joaquin counties all told us family gatherings without social distancing are mostly to blame for the See, spikes. It's because you're getting right together inside. If you guys had gotten together outside and protested instead of had a family instead of having a family event, everything would be fine. You dumb idiots. You see, it's obvious. The protesters, nothing. No related cases except for those four. Those four cases that, by the way, relied on people self-reporting where they had been. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was uh, throwing bricks through uh, some windows, and then all of a sudden I started feeling, no, they're not saying that. It's, oh, I went to a family event. I went to a bar. It's because you went indoors, you dumb idiots. You went indoors and you spread it. It's your fault. And it's those dang young people and their dangerous behavior, not the protests. Some have suggested that one of those behaviors is protesting. Spokane has seen a series of large protests in recent weeks. But according to Dr. Lutz, only five cases are tied to those protests. And evidence seems to suggest they were already sick beforehand. He says he wouldn't expect any more cases to be linked to the first and largest protest either. Funny how this keeps coming up. There is, um, I could play you dozens of clips from local media. That was Spokane. The last one was Sacramento. Sacramento, four cases because of the protests. Spokane, five cases. (sighs) Really? Are we really supposed to be believing this? This is the ultimate gaslighting of our country right now. And it's everywhere, even even I mean, I could pick from any state. And this is the report. It was one month ago that George Floyd died at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. His death prompting massive protests in New York City and around the country. Some doctors warned a spike in coronavirus cases could follow, but that didn't really happen. And we wanted to know why. Here's seven on your side investigative reporter Danielle Lee. The other thing that's interesting about these local news reports is they all kind of have a theme. You've asked us, so we wanted to find out why. You notice that? Outrage over the killing of George Floyd brought thousands of people together in daily demonstrations that lasted over a week. Doctors and public officials pleaded with people to stay home and described the demonstrations as a potential super spreading event. How many super spreaders? We don't want people out there where they might catch this disease or spread this disease. So what happened? We tracked daily new positive cases throughout New York City and we didn't see any super spreading. 
There were some days with increases just after the protests began on May 29th, June 1st, June 8th, June 12th, June 15th, and June 16th. But generally, the number of new cases kept trending down to just 10 new cases on Tuesday, a 98% decrease since May 28th. The National Bureau of Economic Research also looked at protests and infection rates in major cities around the country, and they found protests did not have a major impact on the spread of COVID-19 in the entire population. We reached out to emergency room Dr. Jijo Joseph to help us understand what we were seeing. The evidence is showing us that outdoor spaces and wearing masks is effective. And studies out of Italy are showing us that indoor spaces are what's causing transmission of the disease. In other words, when it comes to COVID-19, doctors are finding that as long as masks are involved outdoors, the concern is a lot less. The mayor had similar sentiments in a recent press conference. The real focus should be on phase one. Phase one, you know, was a couple hundred thousand people going back to work, much, much more profound impact. Dr. Joseph said it's important to remember COVID-19 is a new disease. They're still learning about it. Yeah, really no you, know, you see, you went outside and you're fine. But if you stay inside, you're going to get sick. If you go back to work, you're going to get sick. If you reopen the bars, you're going to get sick. But if tens of thousands of you for weeks straight get together on the street, it's totally fine. The problem with this logic is exactly the same as the converse argument made about not wearing masks. You'll hear people say masks don't prevent the spread. Or you'll hear somebody say, well, if social distancing works, then why do I need to wear masks? Well, that's just not how this stuff works, is it? Each one of these behaviors, the mask wearing, social distancing, gathering in large groups, moving through large groups, each one of these behaviors contributes in a positive or negative way and in varying degrees in limiting the spread of the virus. None of them guarantee a particular outcome. But, okay, it's sort of like going out into the cold winter day. You put your jacket on, and your mom says, don't forget your hat, honey. And you reply, well, mom, if jackets work, then why do I need a hat? The two things work together. If we're going to accept that logic, if we accept that that is reality, then we must accept that these protests also led to a higher degree of spreading the virus. Gathering in large groups also makes a negative contribution by increasing the total potential to spread. Period. Full stop. That's the reality. We didn't see a spike doesn't justify the behavior on a public health basis. It means you might have gotten lucky if you didn't get it. But that's not a real data point. And I'm fine saying that the protests have merit. And that it's even worth accepting an elevated risk in favor of longer-term public good. I'm okay with that. I agree with that. But I'm not okay with pretending like the risk doesn't exist. Or <laughs> that has been mitigated somehow um, by some magic just to serve a political whim. That drives me crazy. It makes me so angry. And these reports, one after another from the local news. They use all this crap data, and then they blame it on people who are just trying to live their lives. Protesters gathering, totes fine. You trying to live your life, that's horrible. 
In the days after the death of George Floyd, huge crowds gathered in marches, protests, and vigils around the state. It's now been three weeks since those events began, well past the generally understood incubation period of COVID-19, and public health officials say, so far, contact tracing has revealed no connection to any viral clusters or outbreaks. Now, this is a key thing to understand about this reporting. They are relying on contract tracing, which we will come back to, and self-reporting. We're investigating each and every um, case. We, we um, reach out to people, as I mentioned at the beginning, to get information on um, their close contacts so we can try and prevent further transmission. But I'm not aware of um, any um, cases that have come from exposure to large group gatherings like the protests. Governor Chris Sununu says he doesn't think there are any broader conclusions to be drawn at this point, but says he's generally more worried about people gathering indoors. I don't want to say I'm not concerned about the protests or I'm not concerned about the beaches. I'm more concerned about those close atmosphere gatherings, which is why when we talk about opening up the colleges and universities, we're going to be try our best to be sticklers about that guidance. We know it's going to be tough. Public health officials say contact tracing remains a huge component of the state's effort to contain COVID-19, but they do need people to pick up the phone when they call. This is always challenging, and I think we understand people's hesitance to sometimes to give out that information, um, and that's why we continual, continually reinforce the importance of engaging with public health. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to contact tracing here in just a moment. So it's dangerous to be indoors, you see. <laughs> so let's extend the lockdowns. They have a theory, though. It's a good one. I think it. I think it even implies a little uh, latent racism. So that's really why I think the media loves this theory because they love calling you a racist. They love it. And you see, what happened was, is the protest happened, and you were scared by all the angry black people, so you didn't go out. And because, on a whole, more people were scared to go out than went out, it actually helped. The protests helped reduce the spread of coronavirus because you were too scared to leave your home. That's actually what they're claiming. Meanwhile, national research also found no evidence that cases and infection rates jumped due to the protests. In fact, in parts of the country that saw some of the largest protests, per capita cases and infection rates dropped. A National Bureau of Economic Research study found that protests discouraged many other people from going out to places that could have spread the virus, effectively offsetting the risk of increased transmission within the protest crowds. While the research notes it's possible the protests could have caused an increase of spread among some who attended, it determined that it had little effect on the spread of the pandemic across the nation. Yeah, little effect, little effect. And... The media has defended the riots from day one. So as, as soon as little reports like this came out, which seem like they're all a little bit of a manipulation of the data, like when the uh, I love this. Actually, I'll play this clip of the Florida governor where he basically says, well, I haven't told my health department to get me that information. Health experts feared the mass protests that rolled through Florida and across the nation could trigger an explosion of COVID-19. And now that Florida and some other states have an explosion in new cases and infection rates, particularly among young adults, many of you assume the mass protest fed the spike. And with that, many of you have asked us why we're not drawing that connection in our coverage. Well, the reason is that the data and the research show the explosion of cases and positive test rates are not due to the protests. 
Inciting the data, Governor DeSantis has repeatedly dismissed the protests as a source for the COVID spike in Florida, and his experts can find no evidence of a link. I certainly have not had my Department of Health substantiate that the protests are, are driving the figures with the younger people. The state is contact tracing, figuring out where people who tested positive have been. And the state's health experts are finding a clear pattern that leads not to outdoor protest, but indoors to places where young adults go to party. Mm, damn young adults. Damn young adults. And like the media said all along, the riots are great. Pain is everything. It has informed everything that you have seen. Doesn't make it okay to riot, says the majority. But doesn't it depend why it's happening? Property damage is nowhere near as important as physical loss of life. Protesters are right to be speaking out. No one is condoning the violence. But again, I understand. I'm not going to judge people. A riot in Boston Harbor started the fight that amounted to America. It was the minority manifesting a desperate plea to be heard and for change, just like now. The idea that you could have a few people who break a few windows and burn a few cars. We're watching years of anger, pain, frustration, boil over. And there are a lot of people out there wondering if this is what needs to happen in order for voices to be heard. They don't know what to do with that emotion. So their response, especially young folks, is to lash out. And people I think are just trying, in this case, to, to get themselves heard as best they can. We would have never been- I could play hours of this, seriously. You could make a playlist of it and just listen for a long drive. <laughs> so from, from the moment the protest started to now, they've never been a risk. They've never been dangerous. I got links in the show notes about all of the health experts that said it's not going to be dangerous. It's only dangerous to go inside now. When you take U.S. politics out of this story, it's a completely different perspective. I'll give you a little example. Here is a report out of Melbourne where they have a totally different view. Andrew, out of Melbourne, we know there was a big, big protest a couple of weeks ago, and you've got some information in relation to case numbers related to that protest. Well, yes, Kieran, the number of COVID-19 cases linked to the Black Lives Matter protests in Melbourne two weeks ago have risen to five. We already knew that three protesters have tested positive to the virus, but now we understand two cases identified today by Victorian authorities were linked to one of the protesters at the rally. There have been reports one protester at the rallies worked at an H&M store for two days after the rally, but it seems that some concerns at the federal level here around this protest are being borne out. We know they said that it would be 14 days after the rally before it was established whether or not there'd been a possible spread at the, at the rally. And look, that's up to Victorian authorities eventually to explain, but the number of cases in Victoria kind of speak for themselves. So on that front, contact tracers have been sent from New South Wales and South Australia to assist in dealing with these Victorian outbreaks. The policy also seems to be to shut down certain suburbs and certain areas rather than the whole of Melbourne. This has been the policy that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, advocated from the start. He's always preferred... <laughs> it's kind of fun listening to their reporting. <clears throat> it's nice. It's a nice change of pace, isn't it? <laughs> I, why is it not possible that outside agitators and others went to these protests and then returned home?
And maybe they did go out to bars and get other people sick. I mean, if you're willing to go out and protest the hell out of something, you're probably okay going out to eat, going out to a bar. You know, at that point, (laughs) like, that's the least risky thing you're doing, right? I mean, because when you're out protesting, you're going to get shot, possibly. You could get maimed. You could get tear gassed. You could get corona. So you're a high-risk individual at that point. Is it not possible that people who, I mean, we heard how many times that there were outsiders at these protests. Is it not possible? Is it just so inconceivable? <laughs> and, of course, it all relies on contract contact tracing. I don't know why I want to keep saying contract. I feel like there's a Freudian slip in there somehow. But the funny thing is, and now all of a sudden contract tracing, contact tracing, is is like so reliable. Well, if the contract, ha, I keep doing it. Well, if the contact tracing says they only went to this place and it was only five people, it must be right. It's indisputable. But the problem is, just before this wave of news started hitting all of the local affiliate news channels, NBC, just like a day before, two days maybe, ran a national report saying that contact tracing isn't really working and that the Google and Apple solution, it's too limited, doesn't give authorities enough information, like your location data. And so it has been fairly ineffective. So there's the question of accuracy. It's not likely that this system will be able to tell the difference between six feet or 10 feet. And some public health authorities say the lack of location data doesn't help its human contact tracers know when and where transmission could have taken place. Then there's the question of adoption. You also have to look at, um, before we even get to these guardrails, the fact that not everybody has a smartphone with the most up-to-date thing. So you're never going to get 100% of the people involved in this. And in fact, it's going to be slanted towards wealthy people, uh, people who have the means. So. How are we going to account for that when we know that many of the people who are most vulnerable to coronavirus are are not that community? The rate of adoption is extremely important. You need to have high adoption for these apps that do proximity tracing to have value. Because if only one out of every 100 cases uses this app, then the app isn't going to be very useful for finding all of the cases. And I think there could be a false sense of security if I don't download an app as a community person and I think, oh, the app is going to tell me when I'm near a case when I go outside. So I'm kind of protected by it. But but most of the people who are cases aren't using it. That's kind of a false sense of security. So it seems like for now, the bulk of contact tracing will stay low tech with people on the ground. But states still have to hire tens of thousands of more tracers to meet the demand. These are all uses of resources. I mean, I think sometimes it's important to step back and wonder whether, you know, just because you have tech, is that the thing that one should do in response to a crisis? And I, I think physical contact tracing is far more important. And, um, and the fact that we have a shortage of people who are doing this and we need to train them up, we can use all sorts of digital tools to help us train up people to do physical contact tracing. And I think get a lot better bang for our buck about how we're doing this than the apps. So how are they doing it now? Phone calls. (laughs) Listener of the show and a friend of mine had a a 14-day wait after his uh, positive diagnosis. 14 days before anybody called him to do contact tracing. They're just overwhelmed. It's not an effective system. And so for all of these reports to claim, well, the data shows us, the data is bullshit. 
this contact tracing is not working. Nobody adopted the apps. And the old school style is just ineffective when you're dealing with a pandemic at this scale. There's so many people that are testing positive. One in four that get tested right now are testing positive. And then each one of them has to kick off a series of contact tracing calls where you call and you call and you call. So we really have no idea, but that does not stop these concophonies of reports. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? I mean, I played you guys um, – let me just do a real quick count here. I actually didn't count these because this is just a fraction of it, just a fraction of it. Uh, let's see. I played you uh, one, two, three, four, five, six local news reports from different areas of the country, and there were more. There were a lot more that just it just would have been redundant for me to keep playing them. And they're all basing it off of this phony contact tracing that isn't effective because we don't have enough humans to throw at. It's really something. And we're being gaslit. It just even 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 just the attitude that the protests were good, they were safe, they helped is ridiculous. Even if in a world where somehow tens of thousands of people coming together, shouting and yelling, moisture projecting out of their mouth at each other, even if somehow, even if somehow out of all of those tens of thousands of people, five here, four there five here, and that's it, we still shouldn't be talking about it the way we're talking about it. We're still, we're still misleading people just in the way we communicate about the risk factor. And we're sending these incredible mixed messages to the public, just like we did about masks, just like we did about the initial dangerousness of it. Oh, it's just the flu. It's, it's not even as strong as the flu. All of that stuff has led to a complete and total breakdown in information being spread to the public. And while we try to blame it all on Donald Trump, he's only partially responsible. He's only as responsible as we let him be for it. And the dangerous thing is people are really scared, especially here in Austin where I'm at. It has been phenomenal to watch people go from nonchalant, hey, we're opening back up, it's all good, let's get back, to... People are so scared. I don't know if I shared the story on the show or not because I've, I've been having a lot of conversations with people down here. I'm really trying to absorb as much as I can because I'm here and I want, I want to try to get a real sense of where people's heads are at. So I may have told you the story already. <laughs> I don't know because I've told it to just about everybody I've talked to now. Um, I ordered Uber Eats food because everything's closing down here. So I Uber Eats to me um, like a sandwich, like a pot belly sandwich or something. And um, I didn't choose the leave it door option. I wanted the handoff because I'm at a new place and it's a little confusing. So I wanted to be out there to flag them down. You know, they're coming to an RV park. There's lots of RVs. It's very hard for them to find Lady Jupes. So I wanted to be out there to flag them down. I was going to practice safe distancing and all that kind of stuff. So the Uber Eats driver pulls up into the spot next to me, the campsite next to me that was empty. Gets out of his car, and I'm just standing at the door at Lady Jupes, my RV. He starts walking towards me, and I step down from the steps. I wasn't going to approach him. I was just going to make it less awkward for a handoff. Um, I didn't care if he wanted to set it on the table, the picnic table, or what. You know, didn't care. So I step down off my steps, walk towards him maybe like one step. The guy audibly gasps. gasps. He does one of these, oh! drops my bag of food, and runs back into his car. 
I, I know I had told you about the story about uh, I had beers. I, I had scheduled beers with somebody that was canceled. Another, actually, two people. Um, I was gonna, I, there was a networking event where um, my cousin was going to introduce me to somebody. He also canceled. So two different people <laughs> canceled on getting beers. That's fine. I would have done the mask thing, you know, whatever. But they didn't want to do it. And that's OK. I, I appreciate that people have to protect themselves, especially when it's the rates are going up and up and up. But I've just I've never really seen someone look at me as such a threat before. I've never really experienced that where that Uber Eats driver was so afraid of me. It was like I was carrying a gun and I was pointing a gun at that person. I, I mean, I saw pure terror in their eyes. And I wasn't a threat. I wasn't going to approach them. But we are so spun up. It is back to neighbor versus neighbor. Broward County has created a website to help catch businesses that aren't complying with coronavirus regulations. Oh, I love snitch websites. I went so well up in Washington where the entire database leaked. Lenny Valpando is the deputy director of the county's Environmental Protection and Growth Management Department, and he joins us now. Mr. Valpando, welcome. Good to have you with us. You have a website, basically, that uh, categorizes or collects Complaints from citizens, also complaints that have come in over a 311 line. How long has this been operating and how many complaints have you gotten? So it started about a month ago and uh, we've gotten 2,200 complaints as of uh, this afternoon. Now, remember, the businesses uh, are almost always small businesses. They're members of the community who are fighting to keep their business alive. And I don't know if you caught this. I'll play the beginning again. The guy in charge of running the website is like the environmental guy. Broward County has created a website to help catch businesses that aren't complying with coronavirus regulations. Lenny Valpando is the deputy director of the county's Environmental Protection and Growth Management Department. Isn't that, why is the now. environmental protection guy running the snitch website? Like, how does that happen? How does that scope creep happen? It just seems bizarre to me. Like, I look at that and go, really? Your, your environmental guy is in charge of the snitch website? I just can't. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh... Got to keep the expectations low, I suppose. Maybe you had nothing else to do during the big Rona. Since nobody's driving, pollution's down. <laughs> I kid. I kid. People are actually driving again. Let's shift gears and talk about the thing that really got me. If you thought that was what got me worked up, I haven't even started on what got me worked up this week. I, I legitimately struggled on this next story um, because it's so frustrating. It's a bigger deal than a pandemic in my mind, and that is war with Russia. And that is exactly what the neocons and the left have teamed up once again to try to push for. Russiagate wasn't enough. Now, now we've got a new spin and a negligence, something that implies that Trump must be in bed with Putin. And the queen of Russiagate herself is going to break it down for us because only Rachel Meadow could tell us like it is. And if this Times report is correct, this means that U.S. intelligence has concluded. By the way. You will notice a lot of couching if this is correct, if this turns out to be true, if this is true, if it's all of that is performatives to couch what they're saying just in case it turns out not to be true. Red flag number one. And if this Times report is correct, this means that U.S. intelligence has concluded that Vladimir Putin is offering bounties for the scalps of American soldiers in Afghanistan, not only offering 
offering money to people who kill Americans, but some of the bounties that Putin has offered have been collected, meaning the Russians at least believe that they're offering cash to kill Americans has actually worked to get some Americans killed. The Russians at least believe, if these bounties have been paid out, that the people to whom they have offered this money have successfully gone out and killed American soldiers because of it, and the Russians have therefore paid for that service. And President Trump was told about this in March, and he has done nothing, nothing about it. And of course, Biden isn't going to miss an election opportunity. He jumps in on the pile. Not only has he failed to sanction or impose any kind of consequences on Russia, for this egregious violation of international law. Ironically, the Trump administration has piled tons of sanctions on Russia, just not this particular time yet. Donald Trump has continued his embarrassing campaign of deference and debasing himself before Vladimir Putin. He had had this information, according to The Times, and yet he offered to host Putin in the United States and sought to invite Russia to rejoin the G7. You'll notice, too, that they... They, being Nancy and Biden, are mixing up if it's the G8 or the G7. That's cute. But, you know, just a little detail. Who cares, right? And then also, um, you heard the performative in Biden's statement. If this New York Times reporting is true, if this, if that. He's in, his entire presidency has been a gift to Putin. But it, this is beyond the pale. It's a betrayal of the most sacred duty we bear as a nation. To protect and equip our troops when we send them in the harm's way. Yeah, yeah, because the Obama administration and the Bush administration did so good at that. And what is he advocating for here? Is he advocating for a more aggressive approach to Russia? Well, what would that look like? Would that, would that be some form of retaliation? Would that lead to some version of U.S. contractors killing Russian soldiers? Is that what he's advocating for here? Is that what our presidential candidate from the left is advocating for? And what they won't say is what this is really about. This selectively leaked information that has once again come from the intelligence agencies directly to the media, all happening right as the White House is working on a peace deal in Afghanistan. And if you don't think that timing is somewhat coincidental, then I got a bridge to sell you. Now, first of all, I have no doubt that this story is true in some form. I've covered the Afghan war for the better part of this decade. The Russian and the Iranian governments have been funding and providing weapons to Taliban-backed militants for pretty much the entire time that we've been there. Anyone remotely familiar with the conflict knows this. Now, the question is, why is this information, which was supposedly briefed to the White House in March, coming out now? If you guess that it's because the Trump administration is in the midst of trying to sign a historic peace deal with the Taliban, well, you might just be right. And this is one of those stories that plays on the ignorance of the American people. They're going to assume that most people don't even know there's a peace deal going down. But additionally, the total arrogance and ignorance combined is the perfect leverage for them to get traction with this story. The idea that this isn't commonplace is ridiculous. So I told you I've been having conversations with folks down here. I was having a conversation with a former service member who is out and uh, in the workforce now. And we went out to lunch and he was showing me some pictures of his time in Afghanistan. This is before the story even broke. It was just, we were having a conversation and he had his phone with him and he had a photo album of some pictures. And he's like, oh yeah. And um, 
This guy right here, he was uh, he was actually working for the Taliban the entire time, and they had no idea. This guy's hanging out. He was brought in by the U.S. military to work with them. He was a local that they were training up. He was wearing service member garbs or whatever, you, you know, like the camo, the, the desert camo, whatever you call that. I, I always screw that name up. He was wearing that. Somebody tell me, what, what's the desert camo called? But he's wearing that. He's wearing their boots. He's got a freaking gun. He's got a radio. And he's chilling with the boys. And he turned out to be a turncoat. He turned out to be a spy that was relaying information to the Taliban and even attempted to bring them to an area that had a bomb to go off. But they obviously they found it, thankfully. And that's why I was hearing this story. Even this was commonplace. These guys were all over over there. He was inside a U.S. military camp hanging with the boys and he turned out to be a turncoat. Different forms of this are commonplace over there. Afghanistan is a wish hole of money. People throw their money into it, wishing for some kind of power and outcome. And the U.S. and Russia have been at this for a very long time. When Russia was in Afghanistan, which, by the way, he told me when he's out there, he comes across old Russian encampments. It's crazy. There's just uh, he talks. He said there was there's kids running around that are you know in their in their teens that are, clearly have Russian lineage. Uh, like when Russia was there for a very long time and when they were there, guess what the United States of America was doing? Paying people to kill their soldiers. We did the same thing to the Russians. It's a bad place. Now, could the White House just come out and say that? Sure. But instead, they went with this bullshit, oh, the president wasn't briefed excuse. Uh, thank you. Um, so one question follow-up and then a separate issue. I just want to be clear... There are congressional leaders who are being briefed on the Russia situation, but the president has still not been briefed on the situation? Look, this has been asked and answered. The president is briefed on verified intelligence. And how does he know, if he hasn't been briefed, how is he certain that Russia didn't put out these bounties? The president is briefed on verified intelligence. And again, I would just point you back to the absolutely irresponsible decision of The New York Times to falsely report that he was briefed on something that he, in fact, was not briefed on. Um, and I really think that it's time for The New York Times to step back and ask themselves why they've been wrong so wrong so often. The New York Times falsely claimed Paul Manafort asked for polling data to be passed along to Oleg, Oleg Deripaska before having to issue a correction. In June of 2017, the New York Times falsely wrote all 17 intel agencies had agreed on Russian interference before having to issue a correction that it was only four agencies. In 2017, February of that year, New York Times published a story claiming Trump campaign aides had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence, which even James Cohen has said was almost entirely wrong, New York Times. New York Times published a column in March of 2019 by a former Times executive editor that asserted the Trump campaign in Russia had an overarching deal that the quit of help in the campaign against Hillary for the quo of a new pro-Russian foreign policy. That's what we call the Russia hoax, which was investigated for three years with taxpayer dollars before ultimately getting an exoneration in the Mueller report. It is inexcusable, the failed Russia reporting of the New York Times. And I think it's time that the New York Times and also the Washington Post hand back their Pulitzers. <laughs> so this has clearly informed their response to this. They are so frustrated with the media and these mischaracterizations of their interaction with Russia 
that they just went this direction and they just went full force instead of just saying, well, what the hell do you expect? This is why the president is trying to come up with a peace deal. This is why he campaigned on getting out of here. This is a shithole. And you know what the worst part is? We made it that way. And Russia. And now we're trapped there in a quagmire. That's what they should have said. Not, oh, he wasn't brief because it wasn't verified. Bullshit. <laughs> so dumb. And uh, one thing that's getting a little underreported is, and I guess you wouldn't, wouldn't expect any other way, the Kremlin has denied that they offered Taliban bounties to kill U.S. troops. Our NBC News senior international correspondent, Keir Simmons, joining me. He has just spoken to Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. The Russians have been denying that report that we've been tracking for four days now. Uh, Keir, let's, let's hear what Peskov has to say. Hey, Andrea. Yeah, that's right. We just wrapped up this interview with Dmitry Peskov, who is uh, one of uh, Vladimir Putin's right-hand men, if you like. We conducted it uh, by uh, internet uh, from here in London to uh, there in Moscow. I asked him directly, Andrea, about this allegation that the Russians have been uh, offering bounties to the Taliban to kill uh, U.S. servicemen and women in Afghanistan. I asked him directly about uh, whether or not uh, the GRU, Russian military intelligence, uh, was involved. Uh, he denied it again and again. Whether or not you believe the Russians, uh, Andrea, clearly today they are determined to stick to their message as forcefully as possible. Our exchange, the outtake you're about to hear begins. With we'll just question. say it really quickly. They denied it, but then we'll move on and say we'll say something else. Like that's a real kind of whipsaw approach they take is they'll say the thing and then they'll immediately shift to a second topic so that way we don't spend any time dwelling on that. But what's really, really happening here is the left is once again teaming up with neocons like John Bolton and others, the whole apparatus that goes from Cheney down. They're teaming up together for a common goal, and that is to fuck Trump. That's the real goal here. And if it means going to war with Russia, if it means stoking those flames, if it means gaslighting the country, that's okay because the ends obviously are justified by the means. This is bad as it gets. And yet the president will not confront the Russians on this score, denies being brief. I don't know what the Russians have on the president politically, personally, financially, or whatever it is. Can but you he believe that? More. Can you believe that the Speaker of the House says these things? She just puts that out there like that. She's playing the best of hits against Trump. And so you have Russiagate back up. You have racial tensions building like never before. And you have the pandemic that they're squarely laying on the shoulders of Donald Trump. And they're bringing all of this together to bear. So that way, Joe Biden can win the election without ever having to leave a Zoom meeting. That's their plan to make that man win the election, not based on merit, not based on his policies or his plans or even a catchphrase, but to just hammer Trump constantly. This story is serving two masters. Do not be fooled by this story and the reaction. It is a concerted effort by the national security bureaucracy and vested interests here in Washington to keep the United States in Afghanistan. It is a dual purpose to undermine the current administration's peace efforts, activate Republican neocons who will be asking tough questions about this for the foreseeable future, and remove any political breathing room possible to actually save American soldiers' lives by getting the hell out of that country. And let's not forget to mention escalate 
more tension, bring in more issues towards Russia to really make it politically impossible to do anything like have him join the G8, ha- have have a normalized relationship between Russia and the U.S., you know, two huge nuke powers. It also totally takes the air out of the room for that. And immediately, right wing groups, not left wing, right wing groups are firing up ads to exploit this. The neocons and the left are both chanting for war with Russia and they're on top of it. They're putting it out there and getting it in front of your faces with dramatic ads like this. My name is Dan Barkoff. I'm a 2001 United States Naval Academy graduate. I'm an ex-Navy SEAL, currently an emergency room physician and the founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Months ago, Donald Trump learned that the Russians were paying bounties for dead American soldiers in Afghanistan. He chose to do nothing about it. Any commander in chief with a spine would be stomping the living shit out of some Russians right now. Diplomatically, economically, or if necessary, with the sort of asymmetric warfare they're using to send our kids home in body bags. Mr. Trump, you're either a coward who can't stand up to an ex-KGB goon, or you're complicit. Which is it? Donald Trump is unfit to be our commander-in-chief, and that's worse than useless. I'm a pro-life, gun-owning combat veteran, and I can see Trump for what he is, a coward. We need to send this draft dodger back to his golf courses. The lives of our troops depend on it. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Isn't that something? Just right there. Blatantly. Let's kill some boys. Let's go kill some soldiers. Let's kill some boys. Let's do it. Just blatant right there. And they're running that during, like, like that helps. <laughs> like that helps anything. And I feel like these neocons and the left are so distracted by Russia that the United States and the rest of the West is going to get rolled by China. We'll be staring at Russia. Meanwhile, China will just be buying us up bit by bit, getting more and more power and more control. While we're sitting here yelling, Russia, 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 China will walk right in the back door. (laughs) And I think it's going to, I think it's at least right now, we're you know, about 120-ish days out from the election as I record this. And I think it's going to hurt Trump. And he's not doing much to help. He's not helping his cause much. And I'm not, I'm not just out there on this one. I think, I think even the folks over at uh, Fox News, his little island, even they are seeing it. They're seeing that Trump could lose. Not many people are saying it out loud on the right, but the fact is that President Trump could well lose this election. In fact, unless fundamental facts change soon, it could be tough for him to be reelected. If the president does lose, that would mean that just a few months from now, Joe Biden would become the president. The United States government would fall under the control of the radicals who control Joe Biden, and they will remake the country. Now, we're fully aware that virtually nobody watching this show tonight wants to hear that, but it's true. And key people around the president know that it's true. They've seen the numbers. They're concerned. Yeah. And he's not helping himself. He was on Sean Hannity, which has got to be the softest of the softballs, and asked what he'd do in his second term. And he just had a blank look on his face, just sort of a deer in the headlights kind of look. And this was his answer. Stake in this election as you compare and contrast. And what is what are your top priority items for a second term? Well, one of the things that will be really great, you know, the word experience is still good. I always say talent is more important than experience. I've always said that. 
But the word experience is a very important word. It's in a very important meaning. I never did this before. I never slept over in Washington. I was in Washington, I think, 17 times. All of a sudden, I'm president of the United States. You know the story. I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue with our first lady, and I say, this is great. But I didn't know very many people in Washington. It wasn't my thing. I was from Manhattan, from New York. Now I know everybody. And I have great people in the administration. You make some mistakes, like, you know, an idiot like Bolton. All he wanted to do is drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to kill people. I mean, I guess ended on a stronger note. Shot a Bolton and saying you don't have to kill people. Who's going to argue with that, right? Well, everybody. Doesn't matter what he says. Here we are. And I couldn't even tell you what Biden's plan is. I think it's just return things back to the way they were is actually his campaign plan. But the protests that were absolutely not responsible for any causes... Any additional cases of Corona, except for maybe four or five, they would seem to suggest that the United States, as it has been, is not good enough. So how is Biden going to win on that? By Trump screwing up, by the left and the right teaming up to take him out. That could be enough. Then we get Biden in and we have a whole new set of problems. <laughs> Well, I hope you out there stay healthy. And I hope some of this has helped put what's going down this last week into perspective. That's really my goal here is try to find where I can add to the conversation. And boy, when it comes to this Russia hate, which is really, truly a form of intense nationalism, which we often go after the Trump for. But it's it's the true form of it that we're seeing here. Doesn't look very good, does it? Stay healthy, stay safe, keep listening, spread the word, and consider supporting the show. Patreon.com slash unfilter. So much going on all the time. I'm still on the road. I'll be talking to people, and I'll be reporting back on what I find. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Unfilter. See you next week! Sound like you're on heroin or something. What? I'm not going to dignify that with an answer.